You should read his new book. It's called Swing Kings. He is uh, somebody we bring on to talk about the world of baseball here. He's Daily Orange alum, a Syracuse grad, the one and the only Jared Diamond on the block with us, ESPN Radio. Jared, how are you, bud? Well, I'm happy to say I'm not in India. Yeah. So I'm, be- I'm better than your listener. How about that? Like. My man's stuck in <sighs> India. He's trying to get home, and he, but it's 2 in the morning, but he's still got to call and talk about his Patriots. I mean, never doubt I, the I loyalty. I do respect the... I respect the dedication to the cause on that one. It's fantastic. See, you wrote, you were kind enough to include this show in a story that you wrote for the Wall Street Journal about, hey, what do sports hosts do when there's no sports? Well, I'll tell you what we do. We talk to people in India where it's 2 o'clock in the morning. Sounds like you've been busy then. You've been busy. The people will not be denied, Jared, no matter what the situation. So speaking (laughs) of which, we will not be denied baseball. I saw this today. You were writing about it, tweeting about it, and I said, okay, let's go. How's this going to work? The Korean baseball organization, the highest level of baseball in South Korea, we're going to be able to watch that. ESPN came up with a last-minute deal on this. Give us all the details. Well, you said it. The the KBO's opening day is tomorrow or today for Korea because it's six a.m. on Tuesday in South Korea right now. So they are it is opening day for them. If they are waking up on opening day, and when it starts uh, later, it will be the KBO will be the highest profile, highest quality sports league in the entire world that is currently operating, uh, which that? is which is truly remarkable. Uh, and ESPN does have a deal. They're going to be airing one game a day uh, here in the United States. They're at really wacky times. Uh, first game is tomorrow morning at 1 a.m. or if you're on the West Coast, uh, 10 p.m. So you're staying up late if you want to watch the NC Dinos versus the Samsung Lions. Got the ESPN announcers, Carl Ravitch, Eduardo Perez, John Shambi, Jessica Mendoza, the whole crew. They're calling games from their home studios. Uh, watching the games on TV and we'll be talking to each other, I don't know, over headset. It's going to be an adventure for everybody. This is incredible to think, uh, as you said, it's the highest level sport that's out there, how they're going to broadcast the games. And you just said it. So if that means, Jared, if I stay up until 1 o'clock in the morning, like from now until 1, so when 1 o'clock in the morning comes in, what is that, 7 hours, I'm going to have baseball on my TV is what you're telling me. Baseball on your TV of a good quality baseball uh, with some former MLB players are in that league. Every team gets three uh, international players on the team uh, every single year. There's been some very good international players over the years in that league. Eric Thames is sort of the more recent sort of success case of a guy who came back and had great success with the Brewers. He's now with Washington. Merrill Kelly is another one who had success and came back. Right now in the league, you see guys like Chris Flexen and Drew Gagnon, which are names that are familiar to Mets fans. Odrisamer Despagne is in the league, mostly pitchers. Adrian Sampson, a bunch of ex-big leaguers. So it is good quality baseball. It's the second highest league in Asia after Japan. Uh, and they are famous for enormous bat flips. So if you like bat flips, it is very much part of the culture in the KBO, and it's pretty wild. So are you staying up to watch this, Jared? I would imagine this this could be an assignment for you as a baseball writer. I think tonight I will. I'm not going to be staying up till they, they, they get some crazy times. It's 1 a.m. today. There's a few games. So Wednesday, uh, let's see, Wednesday and Thursday and Friday is 5.30 in the morning. So maybe I'll catch you know the later innings of those games. 
Saturday, we're talking 4 a.m. I'm not sure I'm going to make it <laughs> make it to that. I don't but, miss it that much, okay? <laughs> right. Like, I, I do really miss baseball, but I do like sleeping. So uh, we'll see. But I, I do plan on at least staying up to watch a couple innings tonight. In fact, you know, it's, it's live baseball. I've, I've watched some of the games in Taiwan when those have been streaming on Twitter. That's been really fun, and this is going to be even better than that. So what did you know about the KBO before this kind of came into fruition and, and, and we know that it's, it's going to be on TV for the foreseeable future here? And how are they doing it? What are the procedures in terms of testing and, and getting out on the field and, and ensuring everybody's safety and all those issues that we're trying to square away here in the United States? Well, what I knew about it, I, here's what I knew. They love backflips, which that's cool. There, there's no beanballs or flipping or bats. In Korea, it is very much encouraged and a big part of the whole experience. So I knew that. I knew they have some really good players. We've seen some of their players obviously come to the U.S. Uh, we mentioned some of the international, uh, some of the American players who've come back, but also the Korean players like Hyun Jun Ryu, who had been with the Dodgers for the last two years, now with the Blue Jays, or were supposed to be with the Blue Jays this year. They've had some really good players. Um, and in terms of how they're doing it, well, that's the, that's the tricky part in terms of everyone wants to say, okay, what does this mean for Major League Baseball? Does this mean Major League Baseball is going to be able to come back quickly? No, it doesn't mean that. In South Korea, they have done a much, a really incredible job of handling uh, the virus. They snuffed it out before it got really, really bad vis-a-vis the United States. They've only had 250 deaths roughly from the coronavirus in all of South Korea. It's obviously an enormous country. Um, they do have some precautions in place. They've actually banned spitting and high fives are not allowed in the Korean League. People are, are going to be wearing masks, not on the field, but people in the dugout will be wearing masks. There's not going to be any fans in attendance, of course. So it's, it's going to be a little weird, but it's going to be baseball, and it's, it's going to be baseball more likely than not much, much sooner than we're seeing Major League Baseball here in the U.S. So, Jared, you mentioned that they have a better handle on the disease. They're ahead of the United States here, different circumstances. But, you know, in addition to live baseball, how it's going to be broadcast, all the curiosity of it, I are we looking at this saying this could be the model for Major League Baseball to get back on the field in some ways? The takeaway I have, well, I have a couple takeaways from this. And I really sort of glean this even from watching the games in Taiwan, which actually started a couple of weeks ago. It's, it's a lower league than the Korean league, but it's still, it's still high-quality baseball. The takeaway I had from that was uh, this idea of playing without fans, it can work. I'm not saying it could work economically. It's not my job to figure out if it could work economically. But aesthetically, it definitely can work. Watching the games, no fans on TV, it didn't – it didn't really register. There were no fans in the ballpark after a few minutes. You kind of get used to it. It's sort of bracing when you first turn on the game, but then when you're watching the game and following along, you kind of stop thinking about the fact that there's no fans. So any concern that Americans had about, well, I don't even want to see sports with no fans. It'll be too weird. Uh, I think those concerns should be allayed. I think it could work. I think Taiwan showed it worked, and I think Korea is going to show that it works. So I think that's, that is good news. Um, unfortunately, sort of the difference is for Major League Baseball to come back, there needs to be widespread testing. There needs to be, you know, thousands of thousands of tests available to MLB. That's not the case in Korea. They're not testing everybody all the time. They don't need to because the cases are so low, they can essentially just check symptoms and move forward. In the United States, if they're going to come back this year, 
you are going to need to test a lot of people because the disease is still sort of running rampant around in many parts of the country. So it just is a very different situation. And I just think it's, it's I caution against looking at Korea and, and reading too much into what it means for MLB. Now, for MLB, I know you've been covering it and, and following it. What's the latest you can tell us about the plans that are out there, those that are feasible, those that were just discussed but are maybe being put aside? Where is baseball as we stand today on its plan to come back? Right now, as we sit here today, MLB is feeling better about playing games in actual MLB stadiums over doing the Arizona bubble or playing in spring training stadiums. Uh, there's a few reasons for that. Uh, they quickly realized, I think, that the sort of quarantine everybody in one place plan just wasn't going to be viable. The players weren't really on board with it. it was, it's a big act for a lot of people to say you have to be quarantined in a hotel room in Arizona for four months. Uh, it just wasn't going to work out. Increasingly, we're seeing governors and other local politicians sort of be open to the idea of playing games in home stadiums. We've heard an idea of having three 10-team divisions based on geography. I'm not saying that's the plan that's going to come to fruition, but I am saying that's the plan that, as we sit here today, is sort of viewed as the best idea they have. Now, there's problems with it. It involves travel. It involves putting players in hotels. Yeah, you're traveling in your region, but you're still traveling. In this time, it's not that. Traveling from New York to Baltimore isn't all that different from traveling from New York to Los Angeles. You're still sort of traveling, going to hotels and going on planes and trains. But that's where we are right now. Baseball's goal is to be up and running in early July. They would absolutely adore being able to say that Major League Baseball is back on July 4th. I have no idea if it's going to happen, but I know they're going to push really, really hard to make that happen or at least try to. Jared, I know you wrote about this, and people can check it out on your Twitter feed and, of course, read it on the Wall Street Journal website. But So we heard about this three regional divisions, the mega divisions, right, and basically East, Central, and West. I know you wrote about kind of a radical realignment, expanded playoffs, how that would work. So we don't want to give away all the details because we want people to read the article, but uh, what, what was kind of the premise of that, uh, living in a world where we kind of have to do the make-believe sports and, and, and try and formulate what's out there? How did that come out for you? In most of baseball's plans right now, virtually almost all of the plans, no matter sort of where it, how it happens, it involves some sort of radical realignment, getting rid of the American and National Leagues on a one-year basis and dividing up divisions based on geography. Now, whether that's major league geography or geography of spring training teams, uh, if they go ahead with this play-in-your-own-stadium idea, you're talking about three divisions of ten uh, based entirely on geography, east, central, and west. Uh, you would play all of your games against your own division only, sort of like the old days, right? Pre, sort of pre-expansion, you just play those same seven or eight or nine teams over and over and over again. How the playoffs would work, no idea, but baseball is very open to an expanded postseason to sort of make up for the lost revenue they're going to have by having fewer regular season games and having no fans in attendance. So we could see a 12-team playoff, a 14-team playoff. That's all sort of remains to be seen how that's going to go. The other thing that seems very like, <clears throat> excuse me, very likely to happen is regular season games played all the way through October and having a postseason played into November, maybe even into December in neutral sites, dome stadiums, things like that. That would allow them to play more games than they would otherwise. You know, if they start on July, in early July, hypothetically, there is a world where they could get 100 regular season games in. 
you could do it if you start in July and go through October. So that is sort of the pie-in-the-sky best-case scenario. And I think in the next, let's say, two to three weeks, we should have a lot more clarity on what really is possible here. Looking at, uh, to circle back with what we started with, Jared, uh, the Korean baseball organization, I'm seeing some team names like the Samsung Lions, the Kia Tigers. Are we talking about, like, sponsor names? Like, yeah, in the name of the team in this league? That's that's pretty that, interesting. Yeah, that's what it's like throughout most of Asia, actually. In uh, Japan as well, the teams are their team are identified by their sponsor, not their city. I actually had a conversation today with somebody in Korea, who kind of gave me a quick walkthrough of the teams or giving me a, if you root for this MLB team, uh, this is the team you root for. Uh, since you're in Syracuse, the, the Kia Tigers are sort of the Yankees of uh, Korea, but they're more like the Yankees of like the late 80s and early 90s. <laughs> whereas they're, they're the most popular team in Korea. They have won the most championships. They have the most fans. They have the best TV ratings. Uh, they just haven't been very good of late. They're sort of in a down, sort of a down part of their of their history. But they are that is who they are. And the Mets, my understanding, the Mets of uh, the Mets of Korea, uh, I was told, are the LG Twins. The LG Twins uh, are very passionate fans. They show up through thick and thin. They're very inconsistent and are prone to a lot of gaps. They also share a stadium with the best team in the league the Doosan Bears, so they have a little inferiority complex. Uh, I can't think of a team that better describes the Mets. Perfect. Absolutely nailed it. We've only heard about the Korean baseball organization for like 20 minutes. We already know about the Yankees and the Mets and where to go there. So more to come on that. It'll be interesting to see how this all goes. And Jared, uh, continued luck and success to you and covering things here in the great sports shutdown of 2020. Hope the book is doing well and people should get Swing Kings if they haven't already. And we'll definitely catch up down the road. Thank you, my friend. Stay safe out there. Thanks. Welcome back here on the block ESPN Radio, our top six list presented by our friends at Burdick Toyota. The Last Dance continues, uh, just gets better and better. Now, before we discuss and go through the uh, top six things from last night's uh, airings of episodes five and six, the thing that I'm looking forward to the most is coming in seven and eight. Jordan retires. Jordan walks away from the game, this hyper-competitive, get out of my way, I'll run over my grandmother to win at all costs athlete, walks away from the sport. Now, sometimes urban legend becomes truth, even if it's not. Sometimes the myth becomes reality, if there's a shred of truth in it. Are they going to go into, my big question left is, are they really going to go into the honest reasons why Jordan walked away? If it was simply he was as physically and mentally exhausted as he said, then that's what it is. I hope we get some honesty from Jordan God rest his soul, David Stern. Like They might be the only two that have the answer to that question, and I think Jordan is going to present himself in the best possible light. I would appreciate some honesty there, but there have been so many conspiracy theories thrown out there that Stern basically suspended him for a couple of years because of his gambling, and there was just this amazing time frame here from the from 93 when they win their third championship with the Suns, which they showed a bunch of last night, 92 and 93, to Jordan, unfortunately, of course, as we know, his father was murdered, 
walks away from the sport. We started to see it last night. That this, What really stuck out to me was the scene in the hotel room. Now, this was in 98. This is down the road a little further here, but spoke to what Jordan went through. You know, this is not a, a you know, one of those lifestyles that you envy, you know, where you can't, you're confined to this, in, this, this room and ready for getting out of this life. You know, so you, you know when you get to that point, I'm there and with no reservations at all. I'm there. That struck me more than anything last night. It, in, I, I just spoiled the number one on our list. So number one. We'll just start there, I guess. Instead of counting down, we'll count up. The loneliness of Michael Jordan. Like this guy, look, made more money than anybody. The endorsements, the fame, the championships. Nobody's crying a river for this guy, but he could not go anywhere. He had to stay by himself in hotel rooms. This is why he loved hanging out with the Sniff brothers and the people, the security guys in the back rooms. Why he did play so much golf and did try to get away. Because everywhere he went, it's a mob scene. You can't just go out to eat or just go to the movies or do things. I mean, this is before Twitter. This is before social media. This is before camera phones and everything that exists today. In the 1990s, Michael Jordan. Couldn't go anywhere. So he's just in this hotel room smoking a cigar. Cohiba Bihike, by the way, nice choice. He's just like, this is my life. I got to sit in hotel rooms by myself. The loneliness of being at the top, performing on the level that he does, being the most recognized face on the planet, and how lonely that could be. That stuck out to me. So we'll go in reverse order here. Number two. Number two. Oh, man, did that hit home when Kobe Bryant was shown. In the foreground, the man many have dubbed the next Michael Jordan. I got mine, I got mine. Here is Michael. Ah! Count it plus the foul for Jordan. I grew up watching Michael on TV. And now you got a chance to go face to face with him. You get a chance to really see and like touch and feel strength, speed, quickness. And um, it was fun to be out there. He's got the ball in his hands again to Garnett. Back to Kobe! I just want to get to the office of me and go one on one. I'm going to make his ass work down here. He's out. We got to get back. There's the great locker room scene where they're, they're in the locker room during the. 1998 All-Star Game, and Jordan's talking to Reggie Miller, and who else was in that scene? I'm trying to think back. Jason Williams was there. He had a fall from grace, certainly, but they're in that. Tim Hardaway was sitting next to him, and he's just like, who's that Laker kid? Yeah, that kid, he's going to be something. He takes it to you, right? And they were discussing how Kobe like missed four shots in a row, but he kept coming at him, and he's like, look, you missed four shots on my—this is Jordan now. You missed four shots on my team— you, you better get a rebound, right? Like, just, you could sense Jordan in the moment knew the baton was being passed, the game was changing, and, like, this was the guy. This was the guy that didn't exist five years ago when I had walked away because there wasn't the next guy for Jordan to chase, to go after. Like, Jordan talked about it last night, how personal he took it when he was compared to Clyde Drexler. Like, Jordan would invent reasons to be motivated because sometimes, frankly, he had to. Because he was the best. No one was on his level. So that's why he had to invent these slights and this motivation to keep himself going. Because he just reached a level no one else did. You know what else really number three stuck out to me was how the media turned on Jordan. For a good 
seven-year stretch there, Jordan could do no wrong. Like, he was the commercial guy. He would be like Mike. Everybody wanted to be Michael Jordan, right? Sometimes I dream that he is me. But then we find out that Jordan... That series with the Knicks, those playoff series they had, were amazing. But he goes to Atlantic City the night before a game. Wanted to go with his dad, and we kind of get the details of that. And we see early footage of Francesa, right? Like WFAN had been on the air for five minutes at that point. But up until then, nobody really had a bad thing to say about Jordan. But the Jordan rules came out, which, again... I implore you to read that book. It is a Hall of Fame sports book. It is amazing. Sam Smith has been featured in this, and for good reason. By the way, nobody ever disputed anything that came out in that book, but just to see the reaction to it, like that changed the narrative on Jordan. We started to find out, like, this guy was kind of an a-hole. This guy was kind of a jerk. The way he pushed his teammates, the hyper-competitive. But, but look, the gambling stuff... As it was said by somebody, I think it was Will Bond or it was, no, it was David Aldridge. David Aldridge like, look, yeah, Michael Jordan's playing $50,000 a hand in blackjack, but that's like you and me. Or no, it was $10,000. He said, yeah, he's paying $10,000 a hand, but that's like you and me playing $10 a hand at blackjack. As Aldridge said, he was good for it. Right? Like Jordan did get into debt with people and owed people money and, and the gambling again. Was that really the reason that he walked away for two years? Was that the reason his father was murdered? Like we're gonna start to get into that stuff, but he was good for it. Number four. Jerry Seinfeld. I mean, the two most iconic figures of the nineteen nineties in the same place. Seinfeld goes up to the the board and he says, Oh, that play's not gonna work, right? I mean, just Thinking back to how big those two were in that moment in the late 1990s is incredible. Number five. The Sniff Brothers were back. In particular, and boy, we found out today, that broke my heart. So there's the one Sniff Brother who, he's got the curl, he's got the perm going, and last night we got more of him. He's playing quarters with Jordan in the locker room. He beats him at quarters, wins 20 bucks from him. Uh, somebody wrote, Jeff Eisenberg of The Athletic wrote a story about that guy today. Turned out, of course, he was a family friend of the Jordans, was a former uh, cop in Chicago, worked on the, the drug enforcement team, and he's got a fascinating life story. He unfortunately passed away earlier this year. I don't know if they interviewed him before he passed away for that. We haven't seen him pop up, up yet, so I, I would imagine they didn't interview him for this, but He's like the cult hero of this whole thing with those flowing locks. Number six. David Falk. Syracuse grad, Jordan's agent. I just played the Be Like Mike clip, right? Like we got a real sense of the marketing behind Jordan. And you got to see that's how I dream to be. That's a Syracuse guy right there. I dream I move. Had him on my podcast. Want to listen to that. Some great Jordan stories. Be like Mike. You know he's connected to Syracuse somehow, right? Be like Mike. We'll break on that note. We'll come back. You're on the block. ESPN Radio. Just need to fly.